Welcome back to Discount Gold and Silver Trading Company's Financial Survival Show. This is Dave Allen, and I'll be hosting these last two segments. I'm pleased to welcome back the always informative and thought-provoking James Corbett. As listeners know, James is the founder and editor of the provocative and entertaining Corbett Report. You can view virtually all there is to know about James and his worldly viewpoints at thecorbettreport.com. That's thecorbettreport.com. James, good to have you back. How are you today? Pretty good. good. Provocative and entertaining. If you throw in a thought-provoking, I'll take it. Ah, that it is. <laughs> that is if it's any consolation, I believe Mel. that's how Melody uh, re- re- referred uh, uh, to you on uh, Wednesday's show uh, in the uh, Saying, hey, listeners, tune in to the thought-provoking James. <laughs> there it is. The trifecta. I'll take it. <laughs> Sold. Sold. Well, well, James, let's leave it open-ended to start today. Anything going on in uh, your neck of the woods or elsewhere in the Far East these days that you want to share with listeners? Uh, I guess Any- there are a number of things. I'm sure most people are probably interested in uh, the Korea situation and the Olympics and all of that. I don't have too much insight into that, but I do note that uh, uh, Gareth Porter was uh, just writing on Truth Dig about uh, he wrote an article called "Can South Korea's uh, Leader End Trump's North Korea Crisis?" Basically saying that the Korean Peninsula Crisis is really uh, one that's been provoked by outside powers. And here we have Kim Jong Un sending his sister as a personal envoy to deliver a invitation for President um, uh, South Korean President Moon Jae In to visit North Korea for a, a summit. A, a pretty major development. And Gareth Porter is basically saying this is this is really quite good news overall for lessening of tension unless the U.S. basically tries to get in the way. And just to add, I suppose, something to that, apparently the DPRK's foreign minister actually retweeted Gareth Porter on that, um, basically adding some diplomatic support to to that uh, that idea. So I think that's pretty significant. And uh, I don't think it's necessarily surprising. I think there is... I mean, certainly North and South Korea have a lot to gain by actually talking and getting involved, but it's always the uh, the question of outside meddling and, and how that will affect, you know, these negotiations. And unfortunately, from what I've seen of the uh, American reporting on this so far, it's uh, pretty nauseating. A lot of a lot of uh, outlets are running with things like, oh, despite the charm offensive, North Korea remains the biggest threat to <laughs> yep. peace. Or I saw New York Times, is North Korea causing trouble or giving peace a chance? So even when there are these uh, outright you know, peace negotiation offers, it's still being portrayed as some sort of some sneaky underhanded regime tactic or something. So we'll see. We'll see how it develops. But I certainly hope this is something towards an easing of tensions. Yeah, how about it? Um, you know, it, it, it is interesting. Um, I read uh, an article, I believe it was today, um, who, who quoted uh, a Japanese professor of international politics, I believe, at, is it pronounced Takushoku University in, to- in Tokyo? I think the professor's name was Takashi Kawakimi, um, who, who said, for Japan, it's a nightmare scenario. Um, North Korea skillfully driving a wedge between U.S., Japan, and South Korea. Um I forget where that was reported, if that, uh, but it was was certainly some uh, uh, U.S. Uh, U.S. news outlet. Um, so interesting stuff, uh, for sure. Any anything else uh, going on uh, you want to talk about? 
Uh, well, on the economic front, uh, it is interesting to note that uh, Haruhiko Kuroda, who is the uh, central bank governor here, the Bank of Japan governor, has just been given a second term, and apparently he's the first Japanese uh, central bank governor to be given a second term since the 1950s. So wow. that's that's significant and shows that uh, Prime Minister Abe, I guess, uh, certainly feels Kuroda to be on his team with the Abenomics program. And uh, interestingly enough, we were, I know we were just talking a couple weeks ago about the uh, the idea that the Bank of Japan floated that they might be taking their foot off the gas pedal when it comes to stimulus and the market's freaking yeah. out. Well, <laughs> it seems that the team that uh, Kuroda is assembling for his second term points to the fact that he may be actually ready to go back into more stimulus to make really? sure that uh, things keep uh, popping along here. And they are popping along. In fact, the latest figures to come out, as far as you can throw, uh, trust uh, government cooked books, but at any rate, the uh, official figures show the eighth straight quarter of GDP increase in Japan, the first time that's happened in 28 years. So there is some sort of economic activity happening right now, but it really comes back to the question how much of it is authentic, real economic activity and how much of it is this uh, federal, uh, sorry, not Federal Reserve, Bank of Japan stimulus funny money floating around giving the, the junkie its heroin and, you know, can those training wheels be taken away is still remains, I think, the central question. Yeah, well, what what do you make then of the, the past week and a half in the, the U.S. stock and bond markets? I mean, up, down, all around, the good, yeah. the bad, and the ugly, yeah. crazy volatility, a falling dollar, rising interest rates, and now inflationary pressures. To you, to you, what does all of that mean? Well, I, I mean, it cannot be anything other than a giant red blinking warning signal, I think. And I would imagine that the historians of a future age, looking back at the, you know, whatever crisis we enter into, will go, well, they should have seen it coming, shouldn't they? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I, I certainly think the volatility speaks volumes about the state of the underlying economic activity that has been behind this ridiculous, unbelievable stock market boom of the last 10 years, let alone the last six months or so, um, mm -hmm. with record high after record high after record high, despite retail sales not particularly doing that well. Not, not, there's not economic activity underlying this. Manufacturing, anywhere you look across the board, there's nothing to justify this all-time record high levels on the stock market. Clearly, it's a stock bubble. It's also a bond bubble. It's also a property bubble. It's, it's everything. It's an everything bubble that has been inflated by this central bank stimulus, uh, Federal Reserve, Bank of Japan, ECB, all over the world. This money's been sloshing through the system. And I, it's just it's just a fact. Gravity exists. What goes up comes down. This will happen at some point. There will be a, a backlash to this. And I think we're just getting the taste of it right now. Do you... Um do you for, foresee um, further problems in the, the global bond markets? Uh, certainly. I mean, again, I don't think we're out of the woods uh, here by any means. And uh, there is, I mean, for example, here in Japan, they're, they're talking about the idea that they might start to actually get into inflationary territory after a couple of decades of the deflationary spiral here. And uh, again, they're already talking about stimulus and, and things to, to keep that going. So it's just, again, it just defies economic reality. And uh, I, I'll believe it when we see it, when we're out of the woods and <laughs> we've inflated ourselves out of this, this uh, bubble that was created, obviously, in the, the mid part of last decade that popped and they kept it inflated with all this funny money. And I just don't think that's going to, to last. Well, speaking of uh, real and, and surreal, I, I noted 
in uh, last week's Corbett Report newsletter uh, featured your 2017 Fake News Awards Honorable Mention. Um, as you wrote, if you don't mind me uh, sharing some of your words, uh, that there were plenty of media outlets that deserve recognition for their terrible reporting over the past year, in addition to the one that were officially recognized by our president. Now, your awards honor three fake news reports from last year. Uh, the first honorable mention features the ever-changing story of uh, Jesus Campos, Vegas victim, or Vegas victim, victim, uh, question mark. Uh, the official story of the Vegas shooting, as you tell it, to use your own words, uh, a fan, fantas, phantasmagoric kaleidoscope, I, I love that phrase, of, of changing timelines, contradictory evidence, and deliberate confusion. Um, but all the parts of that story just don't make sense. Perhaps none is quite as bizarre as the story of Jesus. Would you uh, like to tell listeners about Jesus and his questionable story? Yes. Well, we were first told in the, uh, in the immediate aftermath of whatever happened there in Vegas, we were told that Campos had gone to Paddock's room to confront him obviously after he had begun firing and was shot in the leg and he managed to hold on until help arrived and then um, distracted Paddock from firing on the crowd um, to keeping him from, from firing at certain times. And then eventually of course they subdued Paddock. That's, that was the story we were told, but Campos, the hero, exactly. Campos was the hero, the crusading hero who went in and confronted the the gunman. Uh, But then by uh, October 10th, so nine days later, the story had completely changed. The, uh, they'd retracted all of that, and they said, no, 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 no. Uh, Campos, Campos was on the scene and was shot by Paddock. He was there to investigate. The, there was a locked door in the, on the 32nd floor. He was there to investigate that. He came across Paddock's room and was confronted and shot before Paddock had begun firing on the crowd. So this, this wasn't uh, going to confront the gunman story. This was he just kind of stumbled into it and got shot. And then... Uh, this this raised questions about well then why why if he had been shot before the firing had even started and he had obviously requested help then why hadn't the police been able to find where the gunman was they clearly knew where he was oh, so what's going yeah. on here it didn't make any sense uh, there were all sorts of questions he had of course many many different interviews scheduled with Fox and other outlets. Um, but then after having, I believe, received some, some sort of award or, uh, or been in, in some meeting, gotten some health appointment, he suddenly vanished and no one could find him. Um, <laughs> that, that it turns just, out apparently he went to Mexico <laughs> for a few days or something and came back after, uh, of course he had been scheduled, as I say, with a number of different outlets for interviews. And then he came back to do one and only one interview on Ellen, the Ellen DeGeneres talk show. Why on earth does he end up on Ellen of all places? Not exactly known for its hard-hitting, you know, news interviews. Um, bizarre. It's so bizarre, so bizarre. But then, of course, it turns out Ellen does actually have business arrangements with MGM and the casino industry, and that MGM had dictated absolutely every aspect of that interview and what could and could not be asked and what would be answered. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's something clearly there. Um, but then the weirdest part of all of this is that independent reporters have been doing reports uh, showing that there are people on the security team at Mandalay Bay who say 
They have no idea who Campos was. Never saw him before. He's not part of the 20-man security detail for Mandalay Bay. So <laughs> there are people who even deny that he is a security guard. So I, I have no idea. I don't have any definitive evidence of what did or didn't happen. But I do know that whatever story we've been fed about Campos is just fake news. Crazy. Do, do we know anything more about uh, um, his handler or uh, this building engineer, supposedly, who was uh, acting as some sort of handler, as you put it. Stephen Shuck, I believe, is his name. Yes, Shuck, which I actually misspelled later on in the article as schmuck, but I (laughs) I actually (laughs) ended up leaving that Freudian slip. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, uh, Stephen Shuck, yes. Uh, Again, uh, the same same reports that uh, question whether Campos was even a security guard at Mandalay Bay question, again, who was Stephen Shuck, the supposed building engineer? Again, there are people who claim that they'd never heard, never met, never seen, never... uh, He wasn't listed as an employee... Uh, at Mandalay Bay, so they don't know who he is or where he came from. So there are people who question even basic facts like that. And I'm not saying I don't know definitively, again, whether or not those reports can be trusted, but the fact that those questions even linger is itself, I think, reflective of the overall reporting, or should I say lack thereof, that we've been treated to with regards to Vegas. Certainly problematic. Um, Okay, well, your second honorable mention, James, goes to prop or not. Uh, a website uh, that, as you describe it, came from nowhere in late 2016 to label a bunch of websites, including, I might add, the Corbett Report, as, uh, hold on to your seat, listeners, as Russian-supported fake news sites. <laughs> Go ahead, James. Try, try to get out of this one as you explain the proper not. Yeah. Yeah, this one was interesting. So, of course, I uh, I was blindsided by this uh, late 2016. This new site no one's ever heard of, no one knows anything about, called Propernot, comes on the scene um, listing sites that reliably echo Russian propaganda. They come up with this list. And on that site, a, a list is a number of websites, including, I would say, pretty mainstream, respectable alternative media sites, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean, uh, talking about mm-hmm. uh, Counterpunch and, and sites like that, as well as you know, kind of fringe alternative sites and and uh, sites like even the Ron Paul Institute uh, got on that list. Yeah, clearly Russian propaganda, this American congressman who, you know, war vet. Um, and uh, the Corbett Report, of course, making that. And I, I'm, I'm somewhat proud, I guess it's a badge of honor, that uh, I got listed as a major source of, uh, of material by them, not just a a repeater. I'm a major source of uh, propaganda. So there you go. I, at least I'm being recognized for something. Um, but yes, this website, where did it come from? Who's behind it? No one really knows. They, uh, it's still officially anonymous and no one would have heard of it. I mean, there's no conceivable way anyone would have even noticed this website if it wasn't for the Washington Post uh, that, that cited the uh, the Proper Not website in an article they did about Russian propaganda towards the end of 2016. And there was such a backlash about pe- from uh, all sorts of people, uh, including even Rolling Stone and other places, New York, I think New York Post, uh, I can't remember which outlet, but uh, a lot of outlets basically said, why is the Washington Post doing this? This is McCarthyism. They're just basically echoing this list that came out of nowhere by sources they're, they're not revealing to, that are labeling people as Russian propaganda. So they added, the Washington Post added an editor's note to say, well, we don't actually support this website or its conclusions. We're not saying anything about that, but we're just reporting on it. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. So anyway, who is this? What is it? Well, it turns out just a few weeks ago, this uh, reporter named George Eliasson published an expose where he claimed to have found in the uh, the metadata of the website the fact that this proper not website is related to the Interpreter Mag, which is a uh, it's now under the uh, Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty rubric banner, which of course is U.S. government funded propaganda service that functions uh, primarily in Eastern Europe at this point to uh, to tow the U.S. State Department line, and it's connected into the Atlantic Council and and other organizations like this. So this seems to be where the proper not is coming from. And uh, I, I don't know. I think it's fascinating, a fascinating story. Well, that's that is more than just a tad ironic. Um, wow. Well, that's that's fascinating as all get out. I agree. Um, you know, I, I always thought there was something pause worthy about you, James. <laughs> um, <laughs> but now now under your, your, your third and, and, and last award, which uh, goes to ABC's Brian Ross, whom you refer uh, to as a deep state fake news stooge. James, tell us about Brian Ross, please. Well, people will remember that story that came out at the end of last year about uh, the, um, the, the meeting, apparently, that Flynn had with Russian officials. He, apparently, he was directed to contact Russian officials during the Trump campaign while they were still campaigning. You know, clear sign of Russian collusion in the election. Yes. Except, oh yeah, a few hours later he said, oh wait, no, my sources clarified that it was actually after the election. So after President-elect <laughs> Trump had directed his national security advisor to contact Russian officials, i.e. the normal, uh, you know. And so, of course, the discrepancy between the original report and what he ended up clarifying a few hours later was just so immense they actually ended up suspending Brian Ross for it. But it wasn't the first time that he's reported fake news. Brian, or... Brian Ross, bye-bye. Um, James, thanks for those insights. Uh, listeners, uh, we'll be back uh, in a few minutes after these messages. And welcome back to Financial Survival Radio. I'm Dave Allen, here with our guest, James Corbett. Or just listening to James' fake story, uh, fake news stories of the year, honorable mention. Um, we appreciate your insights into those fine examples of shabby reporting, James. Um, would you mind telling listeners where they can uh, uh, view uh, um, view that information? Yes, well, the uh, fake news of the year, honorable mentions that we were reading from there um, did come from the International Forecaster, of course, always available at theinternationalforecaster.com. But uh, that was a sort of follow-up to a podcast that I did recently, the first annual Real Fake News Awards, where, of course, we had the fake news awards that the GOP issued recently, talking about some of the fake news stories that have been issued about the Trump administration over the past year. But uh, I wanted to do one that wasn't so uh, partisan in nature, so I decided to give the real fake news awards, and I did so uh, on my website. You can find that under episode 329 of my podcast, where we were giving fake news awards to places like CNN for their uh, ridiculous interview with Bana Alabed, the eight-year-old uh, Syrian girl who was reading from a teleprompter about how please bomb our countries to, to save us all, and uh, things along those lines. So I, oh, I uh, suggest people check I that out, that. because again, some of the fake news stories of 2017 were really incredibly over the top. Thank you. The listeners, again, that's on, on thecorbettreport.com. 
Now on to uh, this week's Corbett Report newsletter, if you don't mind, where James, you wrote uh, an article titled "An Open Letter to Olivia Sol- Is it Solon or Salon? Good um, question. Who's a, I say so long. Yeah. Something like that. Well, she's she's a, a so-called technology reporter for the Guardian newspapers, uh, San Francisco branch. Um, and with your permission, uh, I'm going to set the table for view- viewers about this intriguing story. And so, in your word, here goes. Um, as and this is uh, James Corbett now, listeners. As attentive Corbett Report viewers will already know, the Guardian was the recipient of the highest dishonor of the year this year. The award for the fake, fakest fake news story of the year 2017 at my first annual Real Fake News Awards, a.k.a. the Dinos. <laughs> Specifically, the dishonor was bestowed on the Guardian San Francisco-based technology reporter just named Olivia Salone for her breathtaking contribution to the annals uh, of establishment fake news hackery. How Syria's white helmet became victims of an online propaganda machine. James, please do tell us about Olivia and her fake news. So, uh, for people who haven't read that Guardian article, I would suggest they do so just to see how incredibly uh, over-the-top uh, the, the expose, the, the smear, I should say, of uh, in- independent journalists has gone in the mainstream media. And uh, this is regarding the White Helmets, the so-called Syrian civil defense operating in Syria right now. And for people who don't know, this is a team, we're told it's uh, 3,000 men and some women, um, basically volunteers who rush into buildings that have been bombed by the Syrian government or the, or the Russians to rescue people from the rubble. And supposedly they're nonpartisan, nonpolitical, don't take sides. It's just like the like the Red Cross or some, something like that. Um, but... Uh, the evidence overwhelmingly shows that is not the case. In fact, it's not even a Syrian organization per se. It was founded in Turkey by a, a Br- ex-British intel officer named James LeMessurier. Again, not controversial information at all. He talks about it openly. I've quoted him in my podcast. Um, and it is funded, this group, this White Helmets group, is funded by the U.S. and U.K. foreign government uh, governments, obviously foreign to uh, Syrian soil, uh, primarily, uh, as well as a few other um, uh, foreign governments that, that help fund this organization. And the worst part of it is they operate exclusively in terrorist-held areas of Syria, so obviously operating with the support uh, of the terrorists at, uh, at the very least. But more ominously, um, when you examine the actual people involved in this organization, working for this organization, uh, posting on social media, uh, invariably, uh, almost, there are, there are dozens and dozens of examples of some of these white helmets posting uh, with uh, actually holding ISIS flags or posing with known terrorists or posting up uh, images of Osama bin Laden and other terrorists praising them. Uh, It it essentially is a uh, group that is at the very least heavily embedded with uh, terrorists and jihadis who are using this cover of this humanitarian organization to effectively lobby to, to be the, the PR campaign for foreign governments to uh, please bomb Syria to help save the Syrians, uh, which is essentially what they want. They want to, the establishment of a no-fly zone at the very least. So when you see these reports of, oh, this new chemical weapons attack or this, this new atrocity has happened, almost invariably the reports source back to the White Helmets themselves. So I think we see what's going on here, and and the at the very least the serious questions that surround this group. And this isn't just 
you know, fringe conspiracy theorists uh, talking about this. This is the U.S. State Department actually banned, barred the head of the group, Riyad Saleh, from entering the United States in 2016. They wouldn't talk about the details of the case, but they did say something to the effect of we're continually vetting and looking for, you know, threats and ties to terrorism. Well, and they're banning the head of this group as they are giving the group $23 million in aid. It's it's very bizarre. So The Guardian writes this piece, specifically Olivia Solon, the technology reporter in San Francisco, who, as far as I know, has never set foot in Syria and has never reported on geopolitics or war zones or anything like that before. Uh, she writes this piece basically attacking anyone who questions the White Helmets and their virtuous nature as being, uh, drumroll please, Russian propaganda, of course, trolls conspiracy theorist, anti-imperialist activists with support from the Russian government. Um, so <laughs> from the it Russian was just government. such, it was such an over the top piece that I, I, I had to respond to it. So I did give it my fakest fake news story of the year. It won the top dishonor at my fake news awards. And as a result, I did an entire podcast episode specifically about the white helmets and the very, very serious questions that surround them. As part of that, I did of course, reach out to Olivia Salon, contacted her to see if she would, uh, comment on or do an interview for that that podcast. Of course, I heard no reply. So I decided uh, that letter, I would publish. Sorry, excuse my interruption. A classic letter, a classic response. Well, your high you. Olivia letter. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, uh, so the the point of my response was that uh, Eva Bartlett, who was one of these independent researchers who had been uh, smeared in the Guardian piece had been given an email. She had uh, received an email from Olivia to comment on that piece before it was published. And if you go and read the, the email she received, it's ridiculous. The leading questions are absolutely over the top, um, asking her to respond to statements like, you attract a large online audience amplified by high-profile right-wing personalities and appearances on Russian state TV, or, you know, you, you believe, uh, you think that Assad is being demonized by the U.S. as a means to drive regime change, and things like this. Um, so... I basically decided, well, okay, well, uh, why don't I just why don't I just use her email as a template? She's a serious news reporter for a mainstream publication. Why, you know, what better template could I use? So I basically just turned the tables and asked the exact same type of questions, just changing the uh, changing the the t turning the tables on her. And strangely enough, she never replied. So I did uh, put it out there as an open letter. So maybe, maybe she'll, uh, you know, it'll get to her somehow or other. That's. Uh... That's truly amazing. You ever expect to get a response from uh, Olivia or maybe from The Guardian on her behalf? Oh, I certainly don't. I imagine that they will simply ignore this for as long as they can. Um, if if it ever came to the fact that the, there was overwhelming attention to this and there were, there were too many people for them to ignore, I absolutely 1000% would expect them to say, this is a, uh, you know, uh, there is a threat to Olivia's safety and they're, you know, she's receiving all these threats and she needs security. And that's wow. the, that's the smokescreen they would hide behind. Of course, there's nothing whatsoever threatening about this. It's just an email that I sent to her asking her questions for my report, but that's the type of tricks that they play. Um, but I think the larger point of this is, of course, I don't expect a reply. I'm not really holding my breath. As I say at the end of the article, I'm holding my breath, waiting for your reply. <laughs> um, but uh, I, of course, I don't expect it. But the, the, the broader point here is not about Olivia Solon individually. It's not about mm -hmm. The Guardian as an institution. It's about 
the way that the mainstream media works in trying to smear information that it doesn't want reported or doesn't want people to, to take seriously, this is the way it, it functions. And I want to show people that. I want to show them this email that was sent to Eva Bartlett and show them exactly how that would look on the other side. And I think it's pretty undeniable that, yes, of course, I understand why people wouldn't want to answer leading questions like this, because any way you ask, you know, when did you stop beating your wife? There's no way to answer that question that doesn't paint you in a bad light. Um, so it, it, it's exactly that that situation. And I just wanted to show people, you know, exactly how this works. Well, uh, folks, uh, I've, I, I've read it. It's fascinating. I encourage you to do so. Uh, James, always, uh, always an illuminating and thought-provoking uh, article um, on uh, the weeklycorbettreport.com. Let's uh, let's jump back over overseas again um, to Japan, if 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 you wouldn't mind. I, I read today that public debate continues in Japan on on whether to amend its, I guess it's fair to call it uh, its pacifist constitution. Um, nearly half of survey uh, respondents expressed opposition to a potential constitutional revision proposed by Japan's Prime Minister uh, Abe who uh, it looks wants an explicit reference to Japan's self-defense forces added to the, uh, to the war renouncing article nine. Um, that's compared with about 40% who expressed support uh, for, for the amendment. Uh, the article that I read, James said that if such a vote is held, it'll be Japan's first ever national plebiscite on any topic. But uh, critics say that without addressing at least some of what they see flaws in the constitutional referendum law, um, the historic event could leave a, a bitter aftertaste. Um, are you aware of, of, of this? Is it, is it big news in, in Japan? Uh, is this a big national debate uh, it that I have, happen to catch? Yeah. It is part of the ongoing national conversation here, really about the, uh, the, the identity of Japan and the way it sees itself and the way it's going to move forward. Um, again, just to set the background for people, Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution that was set up in the uh, immediate aftermath of World War II, um, really written out by the Americans and handed to the Japanese, but at any rate, oh. Article 9 um, does say that, uh, it basically says that Japan shall not have an offensive military force. So that means Japan has a self-defense force. It does not have a, a, an army. It doesn't have a standing military. It has a self-defense force, which is one of the best-funded militaries on, on, on the planet. It is, it is essentially a military in all but name, but it's just that it isn't deployed offensively and, uh, and cannot be constitutionally. Now, they've, they've bent that and stretched that in recent uh, decades, especially uh, with assistance, for example, to the Americans in the Iraq War. Not, not battlefield uh, combat, but assistance in, in non-combat non, non situations and things like that, which gained quite a bit of uh, controversy at the time. What does this mean? You know, can we be doing this? Should we be doing this? Because Japan has primarily seen itself as a pacifist nation for the past 60, 70 years. And that's the way a lot of people here think of it. But that is changing. And with the changing dynamics, obviously, of a growing China, Chinese military, and all of that, there are, for the last decade and a half, there has been a stronger and stronger movement to try to 
change, amend, uh, at least uh, sort of alter the the constitution to allow more offensive military uh, work by the Japanese government. And that took the form a couple of years ago of reinterpreting Article 9 so that now if the an, an ally is under attack, then Japan can go to their assistance kind of thing. And so that was gradually tweaking it. But I think the ultimate plan has always been to actually amend Article 9 to allow for offensive military force. It's still hugely controversial here. Some of the public is on board, but a lot of the public is not. And now, as you say... The the ultimate you know end point of this would be some sort of referendum uh, or plebiscite, but it would be the first time there had ever been a, a referendum on a constitutional matter, and there are people now raising questions about the process itself and how reliable it will be. So again, this is still something that's uh, I think it's quite central really to to the Japanese sense of identity. Um, again, for a nation that's defined itself primarily as pacifist for the better part of a century now. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I I, I suppose um, the the impetus for for Abe's proposal is the tensions with North Korea, or is it beyond that? I I think it is beyond that uh, because again, I think this this push really started uh, in the in the reign of uh, uh, Koizumi, who was a previous prime minister here, who uh, was at the helm in the prime minister spot for I think five or six years, even, which is for a Japanese politician remarkable. Uh, they generally tend to change po- uh, prime ministers every year or two here. So Abe and Koizumi have both been standouts in that regard, and they've both been on the side of trying to make Japan a more militarily offensive nation. So I think this is part of the larger. Uh, view of what's happening in Asia Pacific generally, and if anything, it's sped up, and uh, there's there's sort of more momentum on the let's change the constitution side because of the North Korean situation, but as I say, also because of the Chinese situation, and now with Trump in office and at least talk uh, occasionally being floated of well let's let's let the you know the Asian nations take care of themselves kind of thing. Well, what does that mean for Japan, which has been under the American military umbrella? Should it? Should it start thinking of, you know, how it will provide its own defense if uh, the American military actually ever does leave Japan, that sort of thing. So I think there's a lot of momentum on the side of getting this changed and certainly political momentum in the uh, in the Japanese parliament. Thank you. Perfect timing, Uh, James. We thank you so much for joining us, as always. We appreciate your insights and uh, your humor. Uh, and we'll talk to you again in two weeks. And listeners, thank you, thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188 for all of your precious metal needs. Or look us up at dgscoins.com. I'll be back on Monday with Melody Cedarstrom for another financial survival show. Have a good weekend, everybody. 